The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. This has been a crazy, complicated, busy period in our lives. I flew to Maine, flew home. You flew to Maine, flew home. Then I flew to Maine last week, or actually I just got back two days ago, and you're flying out this week. Yes, it has been wild, but it's stuff we have to do, so it's not like, I mean... It's family issues. I just got back from visiting my dad. He's he's 82 now, and he... hmm, He's showing some signs of early dementia. And for those of you who have elderly parents and are going through this, uh, you can appreciate how sad and difficult it is. Yeah, it's exhausting. He's a man, my, my dad is a man who uh, he taught mathematics at the university level. He has a PhD. Our getting to know you phase was him giving me math problems. Yeah. yeah. It was how we spent our dinners together. <laughs> was like, all right, so there's two trains. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, Jesus. He was a born teacher, uh, <laughs> for sure. He's struggling now. And he, as an example, he and I went to dinner. I took him to dinner. Uh, I think it was Thursday night. And he insisted on paying for it. And so when the waitress came to the table... He tried to pay for it with his insurance card. Mm. That would have been hilarious if it wasn't in such a tragic situation. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, um, you know, I've tried to do shit like that before. So. Right. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that actually makes me feel a little bit better. Right. Like you, you turn the radio down when uh, you have to take a right turn. Well, you know, I have to pay attention so things can't be loud. <laughs> I understand. I yeah. Don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's been a rough time. And I'm. Uh, my my reasons for going to Maine are a lot nicer. You know, I've been I'm involved in a wedding, and so I was up for some parties a couple weeks ago, and mm-hmm. I'm going to the wedding this weekend. Uh, and uh, between those things, we're we're also dealing with your trips, and so it's kind of 
um, an interesting juxtaposition. It is. Where, you know, we have this incredibly sad thing going on. We also have this incredibly joyous thing going on. It's It's been a weird few weeks. It's kind of a microcosm of life, mm, I, I guess. For real. Is, is what it is. Hopefully, by the time you get back from your trip, mm-hmm. they'll have fixed our air conditioning because <laughs> it's 95 degrees and our air conditioning isn't working again. <laughs> So I'm going to sweat my way through this. I believe in you. Oh, thank you. On my way back, my sister and I flew back uh, from Maine together because she has a place here in Orlando. And we ended up in an airport bar for a couple of hours and uh, started trading stories and interesting facts, as we do. As one does. Uh, One of the things I shared with her, this blew her mind. I talked about something that, uh, that I had done at a previous episode. Do you remember this? I told her about when... The railroads were built and started fanning out from the Baltimore area in the mid-1800s. Enterprising undertakers would ship dead bodies in barrels filled with whiskey from one city to the next as a preservation method. After doing this for a while, they they would ship them up and then they'd dump the barrels out and throw the barrels away. They decided that they were going to maximize profits by reusing the barrels, which is really kind of gross. Uh, but then they discovered they could also make even more money if they sold the whiskey that was that the body was submerged in to unscrupulous merchants who would then take the whiskey and put it in bottles and cork it and sell it to unsuspecting customers. And that's how we got the term rot gut whiskey. See, I feel like you would actually make more profit if you sold it as is. No. Like, you know, you, people love doing gross things. You know, oh, there's a worm at the bottom of that bottle. Or, oh, there's True. this thumb and we are, we're going to yep. eat, you know, drink it. Yep. You know, so... Um, the sour toe cocktail. Yeah, yeah. So maybe this would have been an opportunity rather than something they had to hide. You have always been a barrel half full kind of gal. <laughs> So this got me thinking about old terms like that and where they came from. So I did some digging around, and here are some things I found out. I think you're going to enjoy this. Many centuries ago, a group of Indonesian warriors called Amukos gained quite a bit of notoriety. They were known because uh, for their fierceness. In fact, a 16th century Portuguese merchant wrote in one of his journals, Portuguesa. Amuko were, quote, ingenious and subtle, cunning and treacherous, and with little truth daring in all mischief unto death. (laughs) They have very good arms and fight valiantly. They go into the streets and kill as many persons as they meant. Uh, They were pretty fierce. In a piece of 1672 political uh, satire called The Rehearsal Transposed, written by English poet Andrew Marvel, he said, quote, And like a raging Indian, for in Europe it was never before practiced, he runs a (gasps) muko, as they call it, stabbing every man he meets till he himself is knocked on the head. Over time, runs a muko became runs Runs amok. amok. That's so cool. That's where we get the phrase, running amok. And I never even considered that. It's just one of those cliches that everybody says and we don't think about where it came from right here's another one world war one of course a brutal conflict it was the introduction of many new technological killing machines and uh, techniques landmines during world war one were widely used but not quite the same kind of landmines 
that you think of that we use today. Okay. Uh, this was trench warfare, mind you. So what they would do is they would dig tunnels underneath the enemy trenches as well as their strong points, and they would fill it with, with explosive charges. They would then retreat and detonate the charge. Weaponry like this during World War I was responsible for many soldiers losing limbs. Sometimes legs, sometimes arms, sometimes both. The unfortunate souls that lost both their arms and legs, of course, were immobile. And rumors started spreading at the time that casualties of war that had lost both arms and legs were transported to hospitals in baskets. Now, we don't know for a fact if that's true. In fact, in 1919, the U.S. Surgeon General denied exactly that in a report that said, quote, there is no foundation for the stories that have been circulated of the existence of basket cases in our hospitals. The term basket case first appeared in the Oxford English Dictionary in 1919 and for many decades since. It's now more figurative Right. It's applied mostly to individuals who lack emotional coping skills, but it started in World War I and landmines. That's incredible. And World War I was also responsible for, they had to come up with new ways to protect uh, the soldiers from the weather. And since it was trench warfare, uh, they developed these special long coats that had uh, kind of a rubber covering. Mm -hmm. And those coats were called trench coats. Uh Oh. From the middle of the 19th century and into the 20th century, there was a huge influx of Irish immigrants into the U.S. And this, of course, was due mainly to the Great Potato Famine in Ireland. In fact, my family on my mom's side was part of that first wave of Irish immigration. They came over in the 1850s. The Porters? The Porters. And they started uh, potato farms in northern Maine, and they still run potato farms in northern Maine on the same land that they've been there since they migrated to during the uh, uh, potato famine. But because of the influx of Irish immigrants, there was a huge backlash. So many Irishmen, there were so many of them, of these Irishmen, or patties, as the slang for the time was, that they were accused of uh, taking all the jobs and doing it for less money and undercutting the market. So Irish immigrants were hated in those days. So because of this backlash and because of the hatred, they were grossly discriminated against. In fact, in the early part of the 20th century, law enforcement had branches of police in the larger cities that just went out and rounded up Irishmen. They would gather them up in their paddy wagons. Yep. Ah! They'd place them in the back of vehicles, transport them to local jails, whether they had done anything or not. The vehicles that they were transported in became known as paddy wagons. And the first recorded use of that term was 1909, and I guess that makes sense. And I'm sure a lot of people knew that, but for me, for some reason, I I don't know. I always thought it had something to do with like padded walls, like padded a padded cell, oh. like a padded wagon, and it got changed to paddy wagon. Nope, just a ethnic slur. Oh. And in the mid 1800s, traveling carnivals were a major form of entertainment, especially in rural America. Oh yeah. It was huge. It was a big deal when these carnivals or circuses would come to town uh, out in the middle of the prairie somewhere because there was nothing to do out there. (laughs) Right? And like modern carnivals, there was a midway full of carnival games that you could play. One of the most 
popular prizes that they gave away. Here's how things have changed a little bit. The biggest, most popular prize you could win at a Carnival Midway in the mid-1800s was tobacco products. Oh, Chewing tobacco was before cigarettes, so they didn't give away cigarettes. But cigars, they did. And like today, winning one of these carnival games, the odds are, are certainly stacked against the player. And when the player lost, the common phrase used by the carnies was close, but, but no, no cigar. cigar. Yep. Oh, my gosh. This is the most fun game I've ever played. <laughs> and that phrase, of course, is echoed down through the generations, uh, but not in carnivals. A contemporary version today at a carnival, if somebody lost, would be not close but no cigar, probably more something like close but no large, cheaply made overpriced teddy bear stuffed with asbestos-tainted sawdust. <laughs> not as catchy. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have that same ring. Doesn't roll off the tongue nope. quite the same way. Nope. Again in the 18th century in Europe, social clubs were all the rage. And depending upon which social club you were a member of, that would indicate your status in society so of course the higher status social clubs were more difficult to get into and they would hold votes to determine whether or not an applicant would be admitted and normally it would be an anonymous ballot cast by using two colored balls a red ball and a black ball red was for yes black was for no so with a high stature high society clubs one no vote was enough to reject your application for membership so you got blackballed yep wow those i app- had no idea those applicants were referred to as being blackballed and to literally mean voted against or denied membership that's so much fun blackballed i know and again these are things that we just we say all the time but never really think about Right. Where the origin well, I mean, to was. be fair, I don't think I've ever used the term blackballed, but I've heard it. Another antiquated saying that has its origins in the 19th century comes from music, specifically the operation of old pipe organs like you still see in some of the older churches and cathedrals. You know, the one where like walls and walls are just pipes for the organ. Right. Every pipe has... <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, just you know, you're you're someone who can educate people on large organs. Anyway, <laughs> every pipe on the organ has what's called a stop, which regulates the volume of that particular pipe. And when you wanted to play at maximum volume, you would pull out all the stops. Oh. This is great stuff if you're going to a cocktail party, isn't it? Right. Just drop that shit in. Today we have QuickBooks. We have numerous other forms of accounting software. It's pretty easy to track your debts and the debts that are owed you. But again, in the 18th century, businessmen had a different way of doing it. They had what was called a tally stick. It was made out of wood and they would carve a notch or a nick in the tally stick Uh, This was primarily used to track interest built on a loan. If somebody arrived to pay their debt before the next notch was carved, they'd save a day's worth of interest. They would have paid their loan in the nick of time. Uh, No. It's true. I got my material from Yahoo, (laughs) Wikipedia, Vintage News, and Ranker. And most of those articles that I read, uh, they were titled or referred to anyway as these sayings as being antiquated or Mm old-fashioned, and it alarmed me that this was one of their antiquated or old-fashioned terms. Rolling up the car window. Am I really that old? Mm, Yes. I guess so. Yep. 
There are generations of people who have never rolled up a window. Power windows, of course, in cars perform the act of push of a button. But it wasn't that long ago, at least in my mind, uh, that you would open or close your window by cranking the lever on the side of the door. Right. Uh, You would essentially roll the window down. Well, that reminds me of uh, TikTok that I saw going around a while ago is, you know, when you ask people of a certain age to pretend that they're talking on the phone they make their hand into like a thumb and pinky thumb and pinky like a what's the the the, the sailing on the stick thing though you know when you're on a stick on the water surfing what hang ten like the hang ten um (laughs) shut up sailing on a stick thing Surprised I didn't get that right away. <laughs> so it like a hang ten. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. So they, and then you hold it up to your ear, right? Mm-hmm. But if you ask people under a certain age, you know, pretend that you're talking on a phone, they just hold their hand flat and hold it up to their ear. Oh my god! Because yeah, obviously it's 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 yeah. a, it's a different world. It's a cell phone. Great. Yeah. Well, that's all I got for you. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm late for bingo at the senior center. (laughs) I plan on driving the entire way with my blinker on. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. You hear Kat and I talk a lot about aura frames, and there's a reason for that. We live in Ecuador, and our family is all over the place. In fact, Kat right now is up visiting her mom. And when I say up, I mean Maine. We got her an aura frame so we could share photos and videos from any device and they'll instantly appear on the frame, which makes it easy because she's getting up there in years. It's easy to set up. It takes about two minutes to set up a frame using the aura app and it's the perfect gift for Mother's Day. Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. It is the perfect gift for Mother's Day. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get 30% off free shipping and their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, that thing in the middle. 
Probably the most famous cartoon voiceover artist was Mel Blanc. Mel was the voice of pretty much all the Looney Tune characters, most famously Bugs Bunny. On January 24, 1964, Blank was in a near-fatal car accident and was brought to the hospital in a coma. The doctors unsuccessfully tried to get Mel to talk. Finally, one of the doctors, who was a huge fan of his cartoon characters, asked Mel, Bugs? Bugs Bunny? Are you there? And in Bugs Bunny's voice, Mel responded, Eh, what's up, Doc? After talking with several other of Mel Blank's characters, they eventually led Mel out of his coma. Let's check the inbox of oddities Ryan wrote to us, and he it's pretty long, so I'm just going to read a little bit of it here. Hi, folks. Been listening for quite some time. Seriously, quite some time. I'm not a trucker, but I put a lot of highway time in, and my radio and the company car doesn't pick up FM to save its life. So hmm. nice that we're the default. So we're not a trucker, but we spend a lot of time on the road, and we don't specify why. Yeah. Serial killer. Or, or a gun runner. <laughs> JK, I'm sure you're lovely. <laughs> it's just the way my brain works. I'm so very glad to have acquainted you. Thank you for your podcast. Obviously, I'm into this type of content that you present. I have like three uh, three old Ripley's Believe It or Not books. Would you like them? I probably <sighs> won't open them again. Oh, yeah. Yes, and we ha- actually, you opened a new post office box for a UPS box for us here in Orlando. Yes, I did. I will give you that new address at the end of the uh, podcast. He says, he goes on to say, I am uh, team what you got for me. Yes. Um, I boogie in my driver's seat because it's so funky. Just got to episode 250. JG, how did you do an episode about a 150-year-old bottle of perfume and not get a bottle for cat? Not even the cheapo $35 travel bottle? Dude, this surprised me. Surprised she didn't pack her suitcase for that. Well, here's an update. I actually did get her a bottle of of that 150-year-old uh, perfume. Yes. Well, the perfume itself wasn't 150 years no. old. No. They they found bottles of it in a shipwreck from 150 years ago that was still sealed tight. And so they opened one and reverse engineered it and created a replica version of it, uh, which is available. I don't even remember the name of it. Do you remember the name of it? Lily Bermuda sells it. Yeah, Lily Bermuda sells it. You can check out their... Uh, their website. They're not a sponsor, but they should be. But I appreciate your support in that you want my husband to buy me things. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm pro that. Mm-hmm. 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 Hammy Hamma on Twitter <laughs> messaged us, what are Kim and I doing on our honeymoon? Listening to Box of Oddities, of course. And I love the idea so much that someone's like, well, um, I love you so much. Yes, I love you so much. And we've made this commitment to each other. And we've decided that we're going to spend our lives together and proclaim to the world that this is what we want to do for the rest of them. And yes, let's put on Box of Oddities. And lab results suggest, because they reverse engineered the Box of Oddities, that it is a proven aphrodisiac. (laughs) right so yeah sorry about that or you're welcome depends on (laughs) where you're at i guess guess how it turns out really (laughs) either way congratulations alex sent us a message on patreon oh my god i'm on summer break and started my third semester of rn school this fall anyhow taking an accelerated microbiology class and just learned about biofilms my very own boo effect Meanwhile, Full Metal Biochemist 
messaged us on Instagram, I'm currently completing my doctorate studying anti-biofilm therapies. <laughs> so I was already super excited about this episode when JG got into his topic. And then Kat went and talked about my favorite mysteries with the Christopher case. Case. Thanks so much for another great episode. <laughs> it was just what I needed this week. And we got an email from Simon in Manchester, UK. I love it when we get emails from around the world. Hey, Kat and JG, we discovered the podcast late around episode 410, so our journey in the Freak Fam started about two months ago. We sat here drinking coffee in bed. It's a bank holiday in the UK, and I'm browsing daft memes on Instagram when I chance upon a screenshot talking about French prisoners and sex workers being married off and sent to Louisiana. Yeah. Not five minutes later, Kat starts her tale in box 323. The same damn story. Our very own Boo Effect. I love Hur it. Hurrah. <laughs> Hurrah indeed. <laughs> We're so pleased to have found Boo catching up with all the ups and downs the past few years has been a real journey. Plus, we have a book, film, and location wish list a mile long already. And we're not even up to date. Much love and keep flying that freak flag. Simon and Pamela from Manchester in the UK. Welcome, Simon and Pamela. Thank you for joining us. The Freak Family's International. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. One hundred percent of our listeners surveyed say they listen to podcasts. That's a lot. This is the Box of Oddities. You know what else is international? Can we get like a segue stinger or something? Because I feel like that was beautiful. Like, like segue, <laughs> right? I sure, just, I just yeah. want, <laughs> okay. I just want it to be like poo 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 segue, <laughs> and that was. <clears throat> That's my segue. Yeah. Madagascar is international. Madagascar sits only about 310 miles from Africa, but it's thought that over 88 million years ago, Madagascar split off from the Indian subcontinent. Because of Madagascar's geographic isolation, many groups of plants and animals are entirely absent from the island. And... 
on the opposite side of the spectrum, almost all of Madagascar's reptile and amphibian species, half of its birds, and all of its lemurs are endemic to the island. So it's isolated enough to uh, to kind of maintain that um, environment over millennia. Yes, that's correct. So there are creatures and plants that can be found only on the island, and there are tons of creatures and plants that cannot be found on the island. Anyway, it was previously even more unique and diverse, but then humans arrived and, as per usual, ruined everything. (laughs) Seriously, there used to be a lemur on Madagascar the size of a gorilla. Not anymore? Not anymore. But but the beach is now beautiful as it's been littered with empty Clorox bottles. So that's something. Yeah. One fella that has survived on this magical island is the Fusa. And I heard one video uh, where the person in it colloquially... 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 Oh, now I've said it too slowly and... Colloquially... We get the gist of it. <laughs> that's a hard word. He called him the foosh. Uh-huh. That's which, much easier to say. Yeah, it's, it's much easier than colloquially. Oh, hey, I said it right that time. <laughs> you were thinking too much about it. Okay, so the foosh is the largest carnivore and top predator native to Madagascar that's still alive. Uh, yeah. Um, he's been compared to a small cougar and has evolved some pretty cat-like features, but his classification has really been pretty complicated. The Fusa has features common with three different families of carnivores, the mongoose family, the civet family, and the cat family. And recent molecular studies have put out that the Fusa is actually in the Eupleridae family, Mm, a group that consists of Malagasy carnivores and members of this family are thought to have descended from mongoose like ancestors that colonized Madagascar about 20 million years ago. Good lord. So the Fusa has paws with claws kind of like a cat. Their muzzle resembles that sort of of a dog. He has a long tail like a monkey, round ears like a weasel. He's got a short coat a rich brown color with a golden tinge and his tail is so long it makes up about half of his length <clears throat> these sassy boys are apex predators which also happens to be one of my favorite otep songs he's got super flexible ankles that can turn about 180 degrees to allow him to climb up and climb down trees head first. They also support his jumping from tree to tree. They're super strong, super muscular, and they're an ambush predator, and they can kill pretty much anything. And they'll eat pretty much anything in the forest. Lemurs, though, are their main source of food, as you might know if you've watched the movie Madagascar, which I tried to watch last night, but we got sucked into watching videos about travel. Yeah, and yeah. I happens every time. Yeah, but I do plan on watching Madagascar, um, and hopefully soon. I'm looking at you. Oh, yes. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. You can put that on while I'm doing other things in the room. Hey. Now, keep in mind, lemurs can be almost as big as fusas, 
But uh, that matters wow. not because the Fusa is still like, yep, gonna gonna just go ahead and but pretty pretty fierce. They're pretty fierce. Um, now lemurs aren't gorilla big, uh, as we've already discussed. But let's not get back into that. Fusa also hunt on small mammals like fish and birds, etc. As I said, they'll eat whatever. Local lore surrounding the Fusa is abundant. In Malagasy culture, fadi are a wide range of cultural prohibitions or taboos. And fadi can vary quite a bit. They're believed to be enforced by supernatural powers and are particularly connected with Malagasy ancestor worship. Now, fadi tales passed along about the Fusa believe that just the scent left by a Fusa can kill. That the animal can contract its pupils so that they don't have them at all, that they disappear completely. That the Fusa creeps into homes and steals babies from their cribs. Another tale tells of Fusa that lick a sleeping person in such a way that it puts them into a deep trance, deep enough so that they're unable to awaken while the Fusa disembowels them. Oh, that's a lovely thought. Focus on that as you're drifting off to sleep. <laughs> but the Fady also says that it's uncool to eat the the flesh of a fusa but there are you know some tribes that are known to do so so these guys are pretty fierce they're very highly regarded and their scientific name means hidden anus (laughs) so that kind of counteracts the some of the badassery i think (laughs) no wonder they don't want you to eat it (laughs) the fusa's name Cryptoprocta is inspired by how its anus is concealed by an anal pouch. Um, they're also known to release a pretty heinous scent when threatened. I mean, maybe it won't kill, but it's pretty... <laughs> you, you'd wish it did. <laughs> right. The fusa is cathemeral, meaning that its activity pattern is irregular intervals during the day and night where it does its food acquisition and its social business, um, which is unusual because usually you're either nocturnal or dayturnal. I forget what that's called. (laughs) But these guys are like, whatevs. I'll just do it when I need to. But as far as social stuff, they're mostly solitary, though in a 2009 publication, they reported a detailed observation of cooperative hunting within Fusas. A bunch of males got together and hunted a very large lemur and then subsequently shared the prey. Um, That's not super common, but it has been Hmm. documented. The Fusa is really only aggressive with other Fusa during mating. And mating is one of the ways that the Fusa story gets a little unique. Does it have to do with their hidden anus? (laughs) It does. (laughs) Is this why they hide it? Female Fusa are temporarily masculine. So during adolescence, the female Fusa goes under a strange developmental stage known as transient masculinity or transient masculinization. This is completely unique to the Fusa. She develops a very enlarged spiky clitoris that resembles a male's penis and from that secretes an orange substance on her underbelly, which can only be seen by mature males. Wow. So mature males see this and know she's not to be fucked with. She's too young. Interesting. Right? That is fascinating. I think so. So then when they get old enough, they their their spiky clit retracts <laughs> and they get their their normal parts back. Mm. 
But that's not where the unusual mating system stops. <laughs> wow. A female fusa, when she's ready to mate, will occupy a site high in a tree. It's a special tree that she's chosen. And that tree she will clearly mark as the mating tree. She'll use her lady scent glands, uh, possibly from her crouching tiger hidden anus, not sure. Um, and then that uh, that tree will be where all the dudes congregate and compete for mating rights. She'll mew and she's got that scent going on. And so all the guys will come around the bottom of the tree and they'll they'll jostle about. They'll howl and yowl and compete for her attention. So it's it's like a Madagascar reality show. Yeah, it's kind of like The Bachelor Mm -hmm. in that, you know, it's one lady Fusa and then a bunch of guys and then she has sex with all of them. Ah, I see. Okay, but she makes them go through the little uh, ritual first. (laughs) Uh, She may choose to mate with all of them over the next week or so. Um, Some might get left out, but for the most part, and I don't mean any shade on the Bachelor ladies or the Bachelorette lady. I don't know. I've never watched the show. But um, I'm sure you're all lovely. Anyway, um, basically what will happen is one of the, the Fusa will be allowed up in the tree. They'll decide whether or not they're going to mate, and mating can last for nearly three hours and it's a very long mating session due to a copulatory tie which is not terribly uncommon Um, but it's also because of the physical nature of the male's erect penis which has backwards pointing spines along most of its length between that and the spiny clit how do they ever get it on now at this point she doesn't have the spiky clit i know but oh okay i see what you're saying So the total mating time could end up being up to 14 hours because they might have multiple sessions. The male might remain with the female for up to an hour after mating, so a little cuddle time. Oh, that's nice. And then he scoodles down the tree, and another male will come up. and call you later. She'll just work her way through them. Mm. And when she's decided she's done with this session, she'll scoodle down the tree, and another lady fusa will go up that same tree and all the dudes will come around the bottom of the tree and they'll wait for her to decide who she's going to hump. Hmm. So it's a very, very unusual setup. I, I feel bad for the male fusas who don't get uh, picked, you know, like uh-huh. he, she goes through everybody except one. It's like being the last chosen for kickball. <laughs> right. In but gym. He, he might get to get with the other lady who comes up the tree. That's true. But if he doesn't a like, second time, he's going to have some lasting emotional scars. Something I read, but I didn't include in this and I don't know why is that um, the the way and the reasoning for the for the dude fusas that the the mm. lady fusa picks um, isn't really known. It doesn't seem to have any correlation to what they look like mm. or their observable features. Interesting, which is really kind of interesting. So this mating strategy, where the females uh, monopolize a site and maximize the available number of mates, seems to be completely unique among carnivores. Their gestation lasts about three months. They've got three or four pups per litter, and they are born completely blind and helpless. They won't open their eyes for over two weeks, and they remain in the den until they're four to five months old, and then they'll stay with their mom until they're 15 to 20 months old. So they don't reproduce very quickly. They don't produce a lot of pups, and then their pups aren't viable 
for a very long time. And that's one of the reasons that the FUSA is struggling. The FUSA has been assessed as vulnerable by the IUCN Red List since 2008, and its population size has probably declined by at least 30% since 1989. The effects of habitat fragmentation increases the risk. Madagascar's disappearing forests is a huge problem. Less than 10% of Madagascar's original intact forest cover remains. And that's the only place that the FUSA can live. And because of the deforestation, lemurs are in lower supply, which is, again, the FUSA's main source of nom-noms. So... Too much is happening that's working against this animal that only exists in this singular place. Now, too little population information has been collected for a formal population viability analysis, but estimates, which have historically been overestimated as to like how many FUSA exist, um, suggest that none of the protected areas support a viable population. No so shit. unless there is significant human stepping in to assist this population, FUSA will inevitably go extinct. Is there any indication as to how long they have based on the current trajectory? Uh, maybe 100 years. Really? Oh, we won't be here anyway. Who cares? I just said that to get that look. I wish you guys could see that look. Anyway, so that's why we have to help the FUSA and why it's important. We are in the midst of a mass extinction right now, and we are losing so many species every single day. And I think because it doesn't affect us directly, it's really easy to forget the fact that we are literally losing forever species every day that will never come back. And that affects everything surrounding that particular species and it ripples out and like uh, somebody was telling me if once we lose the bees we're done oh yeah no absolutely i mean once pollinization can't happen i mean it's just we are rapidly setting our our own selves up for the end and in that spirit i wrote a little song oh geez we're fucked (laughs) it's a work in progress (laughs) I loved it. Yes. Keep in mind that there are lots of ways that you can help. You know, obviously, uh, just knowing about the FUSA and sharing the things that you know about this amazing animal, it's important. Um, You can also adopt a FUSA on the WWF uh, website. They're awfully cute. And I think that you'll be glad that you did. Also, um, I love them. When did the WWF stop being a wrestling uh, organization? Um, I think it was early 2000s. They switched over to WWE. Did they lose a lawsuit against the World Wildlife Foundation? Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's the way I understand it. Interesting. Yeah. That would be an interesting thing in the middle. Let's find out the history of that. (laughs) Wrestling versus pandas. Go. I got most of my information from QuartzAfrica.com, PBS, Zoo Atlanta, Wired, and National Geographic. Like we mentioned briefly uh, earlier in the episode, Kat was busy while I was away, and one of the things she did is set up our new mailbox for the Box of Oddities. Do you have that address? I do. 
It's in the car. <laughs> you left it in the car. Okay. All right. Well, we'll put it on the website and we'll tell you what it is in uh, the next episode <laughs> of The Box of Oddities. Sorry about that. We'll see you then. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that The Box of Oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.